Reading Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Blessed is the reading of God's holy gospel. In chapter 2, verse 17 of Hebrews. O Father, answer the prayer that we just sang. Show us Christ. Show us the horror and the beauty of the cross. Show us the joy of what it is to be saved. So help me unpack this verse to the glory of your name. Amen and amen. Okay, last week we concentrated on the incarnation of Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus became fully human and is still and forever will be one person to Distinct natures. Notice that verse 17 here makes three points. First, Christ became fully human. Secondly, why? In order to become a high priest. Third, why? And that's this morning's sermon in order to make propitiation for our sins. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, human, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is the first mention in the book of Hebrews of Jesus as our high priest. And it should probably stun us more than it does. If we were first century Jews, we may feel the impact of that more. They knew they could not approach God directly. They had to go to the temple They had to pay for their sacrifices. Then they would hand them over, and the priests who were ordained to do that would offer up their sacrifices on their behalf. And then, of course, once a year, on, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest that year would represent the entire nation by entering behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, presenting the blood on the mercy seat. 
And if anyone dared to go to that sacred place who is unauthorized, or even the high priest to go at another time that he is not authorized, it meant death according to Leviticus chapter 16. So the role of the high priest was essential so that the nation could have their sins covered for another year. It would go on year after year. The author in this book, in this letter, in this sermon, he, he will go on to develop Jesus' high priestly ministry where he goes into the otherworldly holy of holies presenting his own blood sacrifice in death. So, what the high priest does is offer a sacrifice for sins, which leads us to the crucial clause at the end of verse 17. In order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That big word there, that English word, propitiation, translates the Greek word hileskistai, the verbal form, or the noun but here it's the verb. The English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, the New King James Version all translate this accurately. Propitiation. The NIV goes with the ambiguous phrase, make atonement. All right, we're going to kind of pull back a little bit. Here we go. Look, theological liberals, whether they be academics or bishops or pastors or, or both, they have been attacking the core of Christianity for the last 200 years. Let me give you a taste. John Shelby Spong, bishop, academic, who actually just finally died as a very old man this last September. He wrote, What does the cross mean? How is it to be understood? Clearly, the old pattern of seeing the cross as the place where the price of the fall was paid is totally inappropriate. Aside from encouraging guilt and justifying the need for divine punishment and causing an incipient sadomasochism that has endured with a relentless tenacity through the centuries, the traditional understanding of the cross of Christ has become inoperative on every level. Well, I am here this morning to present to you the traditional. Not because it's tradition. Not because it's what the church has believed for 2,000 years only. But because it's biblical and it's clear. So first, the term 
Again, the Greek word. The verb here, halaskistai, verbal idea, to propitiate. The noun is used twice in 1 John, and it's used by Paul in Romans chapter 3. And it means propitiation or to propitiate, which means the act by which God here becomes propitious. I know my daughter's saying, help me. It means the act by which God becomes favorable toward those who have offended him. It's what it means. To propitiate means to regain the favor or the goodwill of the other. To appease them. If you've been married long enough, as a man, you probably, because of your sin, have had to make propitiation. You blew it. And to appease your wife's anger. It is to bring the other person back to a state of peace with you. Of quiet cause their anger to subside. That's the meaning of the Greek word in the New Testament, just as it was the meaning of those words used outside the New Testament in the Greco-Roman world. The cross of Jesus is the place, it's the event, it's the, it's the sacrifice by which God is propitiated. Where God's anger is appeased. The cross is where justice was enacted and thus it was satisfied. Because justice and the anger and the wrath against sinners, every believing sinner was released upon a substitute, his son. And that's why, and it's the only reason why, that deserved wrath to any of us in here who's a sinner is averted toward us because it's already been paid. In full. Now, again, I mean, I'm sorry I'm going to do this. I, 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 no, no, I'm not sorry. But it's important to know. We deal with stuff in the church world today, new movements all the time, whether it was the emerging church movement, which is old theological liberalism and new guys. No, we're evangelicals. Whether it's the wokeism today and on and on. Look, about 85 years ago, the scholar, a very famous scholar, C.H. Dodd, 
he caused many within the church world to shy away from using the term propitiation. Instead, said we should translate hilasterion just as expiation. It just means the canceling of sin. Now, and I remember like 20 some odd years ago, I was teaching First Peter in a local church every Thursday night. And, and then one of the guys who started to come a little bit older than I was and also reads his Greek New Testament. And he was actually working on like a 12 volume index of how to, of theological literature going all the way back from 1840 to doing it by hand. Okay, he's that kind of guy. And I remember he handed me C.H. Dodd on propitiation because he really liked what Dodd said. And here's Dodd's argument in short. Propitiation sounds too much like a pagan sacrifice where you would propitiate the spirits or, or, or the gods. I mean, you do not want the storm god to be against you when you know you're going to get on a, on a ship. So, so you need to pacify that god with an offering. You want the God in charge of watering the earth and your crops to be on your side. And so you offer the prescribed sacrifice to win their favor in case you have offended them or done something wrong. And what you're doing is performing an act of propitiation. Okay? And all of that is true. And so then Dodd would go on, look, that act there is men doing the action of propitiating the gods. And so Dodd concluded, we cannot view the cross that way. Because men, they don't do the act of putting Christ on the cross. God Himself sends His own Son to the cross. Therefore, how could that sacrifice propitiate God when He's the one who initiated it? And so His conclusion is, we must think of the cross not as an act of propitiation, but just an act of expiation. Just canceling sins, however that, and why ever that worked. Dodd's view is that the cross is not about making God favorable to sinners or satisfying His justice or cooling down His white-hot anger. Because God's already favorable to the sinner. He so loved them, He gave His only Son so the cross is just merely about God deciding to cancel sins. Okay, why is that important? That's why in the 1950s, when the new translation came out called the 
RSV, Revised Standard Version. This is before the New American Standard Bible, before the New King James, long before the NIV. In other words, other than the King James Version, the Revised Standard Version became one of the main English reading Bibles in America and Britain. It translated these words, hilasterion, as expiation. That's the influence. And then, of course, decades later, the NIV with the ambiguous atoning sacrifice. Okay. But the Greek word in, how is it used? How was it used leading up to it? How was it used in the culture? It's not just using the Bible. The word means to propitiate, to appease the anger of another. Now, if we never had the four uses of this word in the New Testament concerning what Christ accomplished, you still can't get around the idea of propitiation. What I mean is this. If you reject propitiation, that what Christ is doing is satisfying the wrath and the anger of God against sinners so that mercy can be toward them. What do you do with the numerous passages that speak of God's wrath? Just in the New Testament. If God is wrathful, justly so, angry, justly so, then whatever you're going to call it, whatever removes that from the sinner is by definition what propitiates him. We cannot get away from the idea of propitiation as long as the Bible talks about the wrath of God. What removes the wrath of God is the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus from Nazareth. For he took the wrath. And thus we who believe go free. I thank God for propitiation. Now, another little caveat. There are many within the conservative, I mean that theologically, evangelical church world who, who say, well, the way that we reconcile the wrath of God passages with stuff like God so loved the world that he gave his only son is that we must understand the wrath of God in an impersonal way. In other words, in that view, the wrath of God is merely metaphorical, it's a way of talking about the terrible, inevitable things that will happen 
because of sin. If you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. That's just the way God set it up. The bad results are only, including hell, are only indirectly related to God. But God himself should not ever be thought of as personally wrathful or angry. How could he be when the Bible tells us God loved the world that he gave? This is why you will hear stuff, and I just mean from the pews. God doesn't send anybody to hell. They choose to go there, and it just it happens to be there. But he's not personally involved in this. Okay, that theology, that very brand new view within church history just does not take the wording of Scripture seriously. It doesn't take the wording of sin, of the holiness of God, and of the wrath of God seriously enough. When you read the Bible, you cannot responsibly say that God's wrath and eternal condemnation or wrath or hell is nothing more than an impersonal outworking of evil itself. Where people go wrong is by putting, making false dichotomies, driving a wedge between truths that are in the Bible that the Bible itself joins together. In the Bible, God is simultaneously angry and loving. And what the Bible says about propitiation cannot be understood unless you get that point. So now I want to first just sit back and we to hear from the New Testament wrath passages. We put this in context. The English word wrath here is translating the Greek word orge, which means anger, indignation. So just sit back in here. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul writes, For the wrath of God, that means God's orge, anger. For the wrath of God is revealed against, or excuse me, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In Romans chapter 2, he writes, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. In the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every human being according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, 
eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. In Romans 9, he writes, What if God, because He desires to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, what if He endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Romans 12, 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says Yahweh. Or Ephesians 2, 3, we were by nature children of wrath. Christian, even as the rest of mankind. In Ephesians 5, 6, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 3, 5 to 6, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. It is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. Revelation 6. They will say to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. That's Jesus. Hide us from the wrath of Jesus. For the great day of wrath has come. Who is able to stand? In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-10. Oh, treasure it, believer. If Jesus is yours and you know it and you love Him, Hear it. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation from that wrath through our Lord Jesus Christ. How could that be? Because He is our propitiation. He made propitiation. He propitiated the wrath of God on our behalf. So in the Bible, the wrath of God is a function of His holiness. So do, be careful here. Sinner, don't take all your experience and throw that in there. There is no sin in God. So when we talk about God's anger, we don't mean a bad temper or an inability to control Himself when He flies off the handle. That's not what His anger means. 
It is a perfect, righteous, appropriate, just, and principled opposition to sinners. That's what it is. God's holiness is infinitely glorious and valuable. Without beginning, He's the essence of being. And then He creates, created beings in His image. And therefore, that holiness of God demands that He be wrathful towards those who defy Him, who thumb their noses at His words, at His works, who insist on the sin, the original sin of the garden. I will be like God. I don't need to be in de dependent upon you. I'm utterly independent, even though every breath their very existence utterly depends on the providence of their Creator holding them in existence. If God were to just shrug His shoulders at that, to just, eh, not a big deal. Let bygones be bygones. Because I, God, don't take holiness very seriously. I don't take my glory very seriously. I don't take truth very seriously. I don't take myself so seriously when my glory is spit upon. If God acted that way, he would be denying himself. He would be denying his very glory, a word that, 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 that denotes the essence of his very existence and being. And if he did, therefore, treat himself that way, he would be sinful. It is sinful to not love justice. It is sinful to not love holiness. It's sinful to not love what is true. It's sinful to not hate evil. It is so sinful. To not love that which is most good and beautiful and worthy. Which happens to be God himself. Should God care nothing about the atrocities of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis? in the murdering systematically of six million Jews? Should he care nothing? Should he care nothing 
about the murder of 30 million by communist totalitarian Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union, or 80 million by Chairman Mao? Should he care nothing about the mockers of his creation in our day who deny that the human being is either male or female? Should he care nothing about the bloodthirsty protesters screaming over the last two weeks just at the prospect of Roe v. Wade being overturned? Should he care nothing about your or my rebellion against him. He does. And that's why he is presented from Genesis to Revelation as righteously To be more biblical, we need to reject the common evangelical cliche. God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Now, I'm going to be careful. The love part might be true. But the way that that cliche is used is foundationally incorrect and unbiblical and deceptive. Okay, if we got that, now we can understand Christianity. Now we can understand the cross of Jesus. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, it is the amazing truth that although God is correctly and perfectly and righteously angry with us, He is the God of love. And this is where the cross comes in. Despite the necessary function of God's holy wrath, His holy love provides a means for that wrath to be dissipated forever toward all who would believe in Him. But He does it on the cross in such a way, and that's what the cross is about, that He in no way impugns His own holiness or righteousness or integrity. It's intact. He comes in the person of His Son. The eternal one, as we saw last week, who became truly a human being and suffers and dies as the propitiation. The wrath-satisfying sacrifice. His death ensures that God becomes favorable to us in precisely those areas where he was just and rightly opposed to us in judgment and wrath. 
in the Bible. I would say to C.H. Dodd, long dead, God is both the origin and He is the object of propitiation. He sends His Son to the cross where the holy wrath towards sinners is poured out and satisfied. And His justice and honor in it are upheld. And thus His wrath is cooled down. It's appeased. It's turned away without His holiness in any way being degraded. That's the cross. Now, I want you to turn to one passage with me. Everybody, if you have a Bible there, Romans chapter 3. We'll be reading Romans 3, verses 23 to 26. And as we read this, I, I, want, I want you to notice that the problem in that Paul was referring to, there's a problem in the backdrop if you read it carefully. And it, it, it's that the forgiveness of sins looks like a miscarriage of justice. See, a superior court judge or, or God cannot just sweep crime or sin under the rug. The citizenry will cry out. As many are crying out now when you got a prosecutor who won't let this stuff go to trial. We're angry. It's not just. And that's a problem. That, that, that's only a reflection of who God is. And so Paul gives the answer in verse 24. And his answer is, it's called redemption. And there's a price. That's what a redemption is. You redeem something. And verse 25 says what that price was. Hilasterion. Propitiation. Let's read it. Start with verse 23. All, everybody, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified in this book. He's making this clear. That means they're forgiven of all their sins. They're acquitted. They're counted as not guilty, even though they were guilty. So they're justified. How? By Nothing that you could possibly do to earn it. They're justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that had to happen to do it. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. He put him forward as that which would 
satisfy His anger and wrath and judgment. That's why He slaughtered Him, His own eternal Son in true humanity on the cross. He put Him forth as a propitiation by His blood. And anyone can have that forgiveness. It's to be received. Only one way. By faith. He's not done. But just before we read on, just notice what Paul thinks. He's going to go on and say why that had to happen. Why did propitiation have to happen for anybody to be saved from the wrath of God? It had to happen because God looked unjust. He, for centuries, passed over sins. David, you have profaned my glory in committing adultery and murder. But I have put away your sin. You can't do that, God. That's unjust. That's a denial of yourself and your glory. It's a miscarriage of justice. That's what the Apostle Paul feels. And why he says what he says. Let's read it again. Start with verse 25 and read through. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Okay. Why? This was to show God's righteousness. Why did he need to do that? Because in his divine forbearance over the centuries, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be just. And that's amazing. At the same time, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because propitiation had been made. He's not unjust. Justice was fully released. The just wrath of the court of God was fully released and paid for all who would believe in Jesus. The point is that God seemed to be unrighteous and He wanted to make it clear how He's vindicating Himself in saving, in forgiving, in bringing to Himself many sons to glory. And verse 26 says, 
he would have been unrighteous in justifying sinners if Christ had not been the object of divine, holy anger and wrath poured out upon him and thus diverted from all who love him. Now, a number of years ago, I read and I kept it around because it was so shockingly stunning from a pen of someone who was deemed to be a, you know, evangelical leader in the church in his book called The Lost Message of Jesus. Hear the words. He wrote, The fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse. Okay. What he's referring to is what you just heard me preach. He's calling it cosmic child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son as an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this Joe LeMay sermon this morning, this twisted version of events. They found it morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Yes, it is. But it's our only hope. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetuated by God towards humankind, but born by His Son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and to refuse to repay with evil. Evil. End quote. If... Steve Chalk is right, then there is no gospel of Christianity. And these people go on as pastors and churches. Let me just tell you my story. Before my heavenly father adopted me, I was under his terrible Holy wrath. It was upon me. It was waiting to pounce. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on Him. Rema wrath remains on any of us as long as there is no faith in Jesus. Paul put it this way in Ephesians, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind, my very nature made me worthy of God's 
wrath. And my destiny was 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Quote, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. There was only one hope for me. And that is that God in His infinite wisdom, always oh, Paul will say at the end of Romans, who has known the mind of the Lord. In this glorious redemptive universe He created through His Son, Jesus Christ. My only hope is that His wisdom had planned from the beginning to make a way for His merciful, saving love to justly satisfy His perfect wrath against me so that I might be adopted as His Son in order to enjoy Him forever. And that's exactly what happened. That's the gospel. And how did God do that? He did it in the way that Steve Chalk called cosmic child abuse, derogatorily. I call it my only hope. I call it historic Christianity. I call it what the scriptures clearly teach. He called it a twisted version. I call it my eternal joy. The Son, who is God Himself, became one of us, and He became a curse for me. Christ redeemed us, believers, from the curse that God's Law, meaning God, pronounced upon us for our disobedience. He became a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, a cross. So if people in our day and age, in this postmodern age, Find this gospel within, and you'll hear it more and more, within the church. This, this greatest act of love in Jesus Christ, and they call it morally dubious. Or, or they, it's a huge barrier to faith if you talk like that. Remember, it was no different in the first century in Paul's day. We preach Christ slaughtered on a cross, stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles.
don't need to change the gospel to make it palatable. What you do is damn souls to hell with false assurances. You demean the glory of God. He doesn't need any pastor's help in changing. He only needs them to be a conduit for it, the best of their sinful ability to say what is there. Remember, Paul didn't end it there. He says, if you preach this, this is what happens. But to those who are called, to them that message is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And therefore, I close by simply saying back to our text, the gospel is saying what Hebrews 2.17 says. He, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you drank the cup You, the Eternal One, with the Father in your very person through your true human nature, had Him turn from you for us and for our salvation. Your sacrifice was more than enough for your Father to uphold all justice in holiness and purity and in no way deny himself but lift his glory higher in the salvation of us undeserving sinners and we are grateful to the glory of your name. Amen.